I'm glad to be here. Glad to see you. Um, for those of you that don't know, my name's Tuere Salah. I'm one of the guiding teachers here. I just want to welcome everybody. Let's see if there's anybody that's here for the first time. Maybe this is, uh, oh, hi, you guys. Good to see you online. Can't tell. I think it's just the screen. So, um, well, today we are going to have a talk about a new topic, and we're going to start a new topic for the next three months. Tonight we're going to talk about impermanence, but we might have to get to impermanence by way of talking about the whole three characteristics altogether, what they are. How many people here know this phrase, this term, three characteristics? Well, maybe I'll say how many people don't know that term. Like, I don't know what they are. So what are they? (laughs) Yes, we'll be talking about the three characteristics then. So we are, this series for this whole year, Tim and I, um, for those of you that are new to Seattle Insight, each year we pick a theme that we're going to talk about all year. And sometimes those themes take up the whole year. And sometimes there are shorter themes that we do more than one topic. This year, we wanted to talk about what we call the threes. So that's on that board back there, if you took a look at it. So it's it's these certain Dhamma principles that are grouped together in threes. And last, uh, the first quarter of the month of the of the year was about um, the three characteristics. And tonight we are going to start another conversation around threes and it's the three characteristics and why it's important to begin to consider practicing or understanding the three characteristics and what those three characteristics are. So there's no rush on it because We're actually going to be practicing and talking about this for three months. We're going to talk about it tonight. This month in April, uh, I guess we'll focus a little bit around impermanence, which is one of them. And then uh, next uh, month, uh, we can talk uh, from a different framing, same kind of conversation, but from a different lens. And then in June, we'll talk about it from an even more different lens. So basically, we're going to begin to look at these three characteristics from these different lenses or like a diamond, looking at it from a different angle and see how we can more fully understand. So just another little framing triangles themselves, these threes are very, very strong foundational pieces. So they are not just random. They are glued together in such a way that if you practice with one, you begin to understand the other two. And if you practice, uh, and when you're, when you're, Uh, understanding grows in one area, your understanding begins to grow in the other areas. So it's the, the strength of it as a web becomes very, very strong in our practice. 
And the three characteristics is probably, I mean, it's one of the very main foundational pieces of understanding why life is so difficult. In fact, I think it's the thing that the Buddha actually saw in his awakening. So it's another way to think about it is, you know, we all know great sages and we all know people. We've even heard musicians and poets come up with these great lines. And it's almost like I have songs in my head that I've had in my head forever because when I sing it or I think about it, I just have this sense of that phrasing, that way that song is, says exactly what I think about life, exactly what I, how I feel about the connection with life. And so you can think about with Buddha, what is it that he emphasized in his practice when he started teaching after he had become awakened of all the things he could have talked about, the thing he dwelled on constantly was the inconsistent nature of life, the inconsistent or the sense of what we have in English translated as this impermanence of life. He talked about it constantly. And when he talked about it, he didn't talk about it like it was just a random thing. He talked about it like it is the thing that when you could begin to understand impermanence, then you could begin to understand the nature of this human existence that we live in. You can understand why we suffer. It all, the whole thing begins to make sense. And we are less trapped by it when it begins to make sense. So another way to think about this is, uh, let me just tell you what the three characteristics are so you kind of know. One is, the first one is uh, anicca, which in Pali is translated to impermanence. It's this uh, inconsistence. It's not permanent. It is changing all the time. And this is the world that we live in is always changing, impermanent, not consistent. And because it's changing, inconsistent, not permanent, or another way to say it is, it is always decaying. So everything that arises is decaying in some mechanism, some way or another. And in that constant decaying, we are, we find ourselves constantly dissatisfied. It's stressful to be in a world that's always changing. If we could make it permanent, it wouldn't be so stressful. But what makes this world so stressful, which moves to the second characteristic, this sense of dukkha, which is a Pali word that's been translated as suffering. And suffering is okay translation, I guess, for me. I, I say suffering all the time. But what it really means is we are forever unsatisfied. It doesn't matter how a moment, it's not even a moment, 
we can have things completely lined up in our life. We feel great. Everything is perfect. Don't need anything else. And you can wake up, who knows why, in a pissy mood. And then nothing's right. Everything is off. You're just grumbling at everybody. And that capacity for things to just change constantly without us having any control over it is what makes life itself so stressful, so dissatisfying, complicated. It is the nature of suffering. I guess I should say it is the nature of one version of suffering. Dukkha at some level. And then this third piece is a little different is um, this piece around life not being personal. Meaning that none of us in this room would really care if things were impermanent and there was suffering, if we could fix it, we, we would be like, oh, okay. We just tweak it a little bit and back to normal. Everything's good. And part of the difficulty is that life in its movement and flow, we don't, we cannot control it. Oh, we can control some things. We control it for a little bit here and there. But much of our lives is out of our control. And so there's this way in which we live in a world that is consistently impermanent, shifting, changing, inconsistent. It is insubstantial. It's not satisfying. It doesn't work all the time. And it's not personal, so I can't actually control it. Now, on one level, that's pretty jacked up. That's that's messed up. And there is a way that our minds deal with this. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about what Buddha, his what he saw and how he saw the liberative quality of that. So this natural way of the three characteristics showing up in life, it shows up in life this way because we live in a realm in this human birth that's classified or called the realm of samsara. Samsara means it's cyclical. It just constantly happens over and over and over. Our lives are habitual. The cyclical nature of things dying and passing away and then coming back into life again. Um, it's this continuity of suffering, I guess you could say, that we move through a world where there's always a level of uh, suffering, mostly because Everything about our existence is conditional, meaning that um, our bodies 
Let's see if I can. I want to, I want to share this uh, sutta. I love this sutta. I love it. And yet it is one of the most complicated, difficult suttas to kind of grasp. But I think it's, I think it's one of those things where the Buddha simplified something and, 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 uh, the first time I read it, it, it all made sense to me, but it's harder and harder. It gets hard to explain it. So I'm hoping that uh, I can explain it to, to, to help see. But if I can't, you know, it's all good. We'll think of another way to explain it. <laughs> but the Buddha was sitting with one of his senior teachers And he looks off into this field, this rice paddy, and he says, that is the nature of existence. It is the nature of Dhamma. And if you understand the life of a rice seedling, you will understand the Dhamma. You can understand it in its entirety. So the nature of a rice seedling is that a seed is conditioned on the seed itself, the packed in little bits and pieces have to be a healthy enough seed that if it gets the conditioning of the right amount of soil and water and pressure of the soil, it will sprout. It doesn't sprout if there's something wrong with the conditions inside the seed. It doesn't sprout if there's no water that gets down in the soil or if the soil doesn't have a, a, a good enough nutrients in it. You can put the seed in there, but it won't necessarily sprout. But when conditions come together, just as so, as needed, then the seed sprouts and you get a little sprout. And then if that sprout kind of pushes up above the ground and there's enough sunlight and enough rain and enough nutrients and the sprout itself has enough of a food base in the ground to keep it growing, it will grow into a seedling and it'll just keep growing into rice. Because it's when the conditions come together, something exists. And when the conditions do not come together, it does not exist. What I think the Buddha was pointing to and what I think the reason why living in a conditioned world is difficult is we cannot keep conditions together. We cannot keep conditions to be set permanently the way we want them to be and there's always this shifting and changing or as Pema Chodron says there's this constant coming together of conditions something exists and then there's this falling away of conditions and things don't exist coming together falling away coming and going coming and going constantly in our lives So that's the nature of existence. This is what I think the Buddha saw and the liberative part of it. I want to get to it in a moment. But 
we have a weird kind of a mind. We have a mind that exists in permanency. So I call this mind, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, uh, I guess you could call a teaching around what I call the four great distortions. So we have a mind that labels and sees everything as permanent, even though intellectually we know it's not. The way we see life is permanent. So when I get a new job, I see that job as permanent. I do not think it's nothing's going to happen where I will not be in that job. Even though most of us in this room have had more than one job, several jobs. We had it, and then we don't have that job. Now we have another job. And then we don't have that job, and we have another job. Some of you guys are like me. You've had lots of jobs. And then some people may have only had two jobs. But the idea that a job will stay Soon as we get it, we think it's permanent. Soon as we buy a car, it's permanent. Soon as we get our apartment, permanent. Relationships, permanent. Everything that the mind sees, it automatically falls in this great distortion of seeing it as permanent. Even bad stuff. Soon as I feel bad, it feels like I'm going to feel bad forever. It'll never stop. This, it doesn't matter. Whatever comes to our understanding, we see it as permanent. The second distortion we have in the mind is that we expect certain things to satisfy us, meaning that if it satisfied us once, it should satisfy us all the time. It's the root cause of much of our addictions. It's this kind of, uh, it's how we search for problem solving. So we, as soon as some difficulty comes, we reach out and try to grab something to satisfy us. And we grab the things that always satisfied us before. And we expect that this is going to work. But it doesn't. And that constant in truth It doesn't satisfy. It's not, we don't live in a world where things that are conditioned and and, and, um, unreliable are going to satisfy us. But every single one of us, when we put the key in the car, when we get out in that car, we expect it to turn over. We expect that car to start. We expect it to go. Even though every single one of us know that cars cannot start. Something could go wrong with them. We just never expect it to happen, even though we know that it won't be reliable. It's not always going to happen that way. So we go through this world both expecting things to be permanent, expecting things that are inherently unreliable to be reliable. Another distortion We take things personal. So we think everything that happens in our understanding is about us. Somehow it has something to do with me. If I walk outside, 
and somebody, oh, I'll just, let me just explain it. This is how unpersonal something is. So I was on this retreat. I did two months. At the end of the first month, I'm like deep in it now. I don't really care about nobody. Just sitting there. It was breakfast. First morning after the second month started, some woman sat down across from me in breakfast. And shortly after she sat down, I got up. Uh, I was done with breakfast and I left. At the end of the second month, she comes to me. She said, okay, what did I do? I said, excuse me? (laughs) She said, what did I do? I know I did something. It's bothered me all month. I have no idea what I did. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know you. I didn't, you didn't do nothing. She goes, I know I did something. I said, no, I, you didn't do anything. She goes, look, I sat down first morning of the retreat and you looked at me and you got up and walked away. So what did I do to upset you? <laughs> I want to say, lady. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, she goes, I just want to apologize for whatever I did. If you just, you know, I just need to apologize. I'm sorry. So I said, okay, you are forgiven. (laughs) (laughs) What did I do? Why can't you just tell me what I did? (laughs) I'm like, I think I just looked your way. I don't think I was looking at you. She would not accept that. This is what happens to us. We think everything that happens that we feel is connected to us. It's not random. But in truth, the world is extremely random. And we are not the center of the universe. It is not connected to us. It's as if a lot of our personal kind of um, grumblings in the world because we get impacted by the world, we take it personal. I saw it so much when I was a prosecutor. Everyone thinks a crime is done to them. They did have a crime done to them. But the person committing the crime, 90% of the time, they don't even see you. They're just trying to get whatever they want and they can steal that. So they steal that. And you, as an individual, think they're stealing your stuff. This is personal. And so this idea of taking the world personally puts an extra spin on it because we think since it's personal, I should be able to control what happens. These three things, this taking things personal that are not personal, this expecting things to satisfy us when they are inherently unreliable, and this looking at things as being um, permanent when they're not. This distortion that we live out of is what keeps us tied in this kind of cyclical pattern. 
And it is the nature of all of our kind of difficulties in general. This is what I think the Buddha realized. It's something that mindfulness or this practice of meditation is trying to help us see. And gradually, as you start practicing, you can begin to see it more and more and more. But what I think the Buddha was pointing to is he noticed whatever arises It decays on its own. You don't have to do anything about it. So whatever condition arises in a sit, what usually happens is some condition arises. Let's say it gets too cold or it gets too hot or I have some sensation that I don't like. We shift our attention from just being with the experience to this distorted mind that thinks this is permanent, this is painful, don't like it, should be different, and it's all about me. We shift into that distorted thinking. And when we shift into that distorted thinking, we begin to do some things. And that stuff that we do keeps us trapped in this cycle. The first thing I think we do is we shift into what you could consider problem-solving mode. Soon as we experience something that's really part of the natural way life is, we shift into problem-solving mode. And then we start beginning to fix that problem in whatever capacity we can. Unfortunately, we actually do fix the problem oftentimes. And I say unfortunately, because every time we happen to fix something, we think that's the way to do it. So then that becomes our thing that's going to fix it, satisfy us, going to be reliable, and we try it the next time, but it doesn't work. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't because it's not personal and it's not you actually fixing the problem. So we have these ways of setting things up to try to fix things. And in that whole problem solving mode, we get trapped into believing our own capacity to control what's happening around us. We do have control over some things. There's no doubt about it. And the idea that we should just don't worry about it and just let everything just kind of flow as it flows and I'm not even worried about it, that doesn't make any sense. Where I think our liberative quality is, is that when something happens, and we seek to control it or tweak it or fix the conditions, it's when that tweaking doesn't work. When it doesn't work, we don't just say, oh, I see, this is out of my control. Let me let it go on. We completely get uh, into it and keep trying to fix it, keep trying to fix it 
because we lose sight of the true nature of existence, which is the impermanent, dissatisfactory, and it's not personal. And we become attached to what we think the outcome should be. And we get trapped in that trying to fix it. This is the, this is why it's so difficult when you're practicing because there's a thing that we're doing in meditation that if you don't actually notice it, you will lose sight of what meditation is all about. I think we have cultivated an idea that meditation is about um, getting still, peaceful, samadhi, concentrated, blissful, very nice. And in truth, though, most of our sits are far from that. We are mostly sitting, trying to bring our attention back. And if you knew that meditation was really to begin to see that things are impermanent, that things are difficult, that changing nature of things is difficult, and that it's not personal, there's something you can see in meditation that is a game changer for this living in a world where we're always stuck trying to make our lives better. It comes with beginning to see that whatever rises, passes. Whatever comes together, decays. So what that means in truth is, whatever discomfort arises in a sit will pass, but we rarely see that passing because as soon as the discomfort rises, we start doing everything we can to fix it, to get it out of here because the discomfort rising is a problem. It's only a problem because at first I was peaceful this is going to be an okay sit. I think this is going to be okay. It's going to be good. Some discomfort rises. And now we got to fix it to get back to where we were. And all of that fixing is creating all kinds of mess in the process. And all that mess in the process is making things more and more and more difficult. Or we have a difficult sit. The thing we start to sit out and already the mind is acting up. We can't settle it down. And then somehow we think we get it peaceful. We made it still. I did it right. Oh, we're good now. And then we lose that. And there is all this kerfuffle trying to get back what we thought we created. And we never created it in the first place. Instead, in our practice, if the idea were to just notice the coming together of phenomena and the passing away, that we would begin to see that much of what we call what the, much of what Buddha was talking about as dukkha 
is not the basic difficulties that happen in life. Everybody, when the sit is peaceful, we're all happy. No one likes it when it gets unpeaceful. But the difference is the longer you meditate, the less you believe that that falling apart is permanent. The more you begin to see that all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of thinking, you see that as part of the process. And you just anchor yourself, anchor yourself, anchor yourself, and eventually it falls back into the same piece it was before. You didn't create the piece the first time, and you don't create it the second time. So what we are going to work with over the next three months is how could I come to an understanding where I am not sort of doing nothing and just sitting here, and at the same time, I'm not getting lost in trying to control whatever's happening. There is a, a, a capacity to see in a very freeing way when you can see the changing nature of things and you begin to see that it's not you that has to control it. First time I really begin to see this was with the Tibetans have this phrase that they call emotions. I think I've told you guys, they call emotions self-liberating. That is the best idea. So think about this for a moment. Emotions, all of them, sadness, worry, happiness, you name it. You got an emotion that you don't like, it's self-liberating. And what they mean by self-liberating is you don't have to do nothing to that sadness. It will leave you. Now, the story won't leave you. You dwell on the story and the sadness will follow the story. So the mind gets stuck in the permanency of that story because it cannot get rid of or fix the thing that caused it to connect to sadness, caused me to feel sad. So I start living in that story and the mind can hold that story forever and never let it go. Never let it go because the mind exists in the world of permanency, this egoic mind. But at the same time, if you let go of the story itself and you feel into the body, the felt sense of what's happening, that sense of permanency with sadness will pass away. It doesn't stay. It only stays as long as the mind holds the story because the story drives the feeling. And when the story goes, the, the emotions themselves are self-liberating. They can't stay. They come together in relation to a story. When the story is let go of, they pass away. So the next time you feel yourself spinning in this emotional energy, like anxiety, I mean, all of it, you got to ask yourself, 
What are you holding on to? Are you expecting something to be permanent that's impermanent? And you're holding on to this thing that you think is permanent, but it's not. Are you expecting something to satisfy and be reliable? And yet you're realizing it wasn't that reliable this time. It wasn't that satisfactory. Are you taking something personal that's not personal? So you're trying to put an overlay of control on something that you don't actually have control over. And then there's one more. I always save this one kind of for last because I think this is what television did to us. I think it kind of ruined us. But the last one is this expecting the world to be lovely. Everything's going to be tidied up. And it comes from years of watching sitcoms where no matter how bad it got, they tidied it up at the end. Everything worked out. Everybody's happy. They made peace. Friendships came back together. The bad person got arrested and put in jail. And the good person goes on with their life. That is not the truth of the way life is. It's jacked up. There are bad things. Good people have bad things happen to them and they go to jail. And the people that are bad, they don't go to jail at all. It's just sort of like this whole world is messed up. It is not tidied up and lovely. Ugly things happen. And things that we expect to work out don't work out. People that we think try really hard not to to, you know, to, to, to really just have a good life. They're beat right. They take care of themselves. They don't do anything crazy. And they get hit by a car. And they die at 20. It's sort of like there's no almost rhyme and reason for what happens in our lives. And we are always leaning in this idea that it should be tidy. It should be nice, in order, lovely. Everything's going to work out okay. Instead, what I think the Buddha is pointing to with all of this sort of looking into and what I hope we ultimately begin to do over the course of the next three months is to begin to look at the enjoyment of the present moment. It's not the dwelling or holding on or dwelling on the the regret of the past. It's not even this kind of futuristic thinking and wishing. It's in the present moment. And in the present moment, things have come together and we can appreciate that which is good and things will fall apart and we can let the falling apart happen. It does not mean we will never have any good anymore. It's just that the good will come into the present moment and we can truly appreciate it. I remember one time being on a retreat and I I don't believe I've seen this in Seattle. But the sky sometimes in 
at Spirit Rock in California is pink and blue at the same time. I mean, really pink, really blue. And the first time I saw it, I was blown away. It was so magnificent. And I remember I could see it. And I was said, I said to myself, is this really pink and blue? And I'm looking. And then I start wondering, oh, it's probably not pink. It's probably some kind of a, you know, something to do with the molecules or the way the light is shining. And, and then it was like the thinking mind completely destroyed that. And even though I kept trying to look, I could see pink and blue, but it didn't have this kind of magnificent awe feeling to it. It was just sky that's pink and blue. And I kept trying to find the awe that I had in that present moment and I couldn't find it. There is something that what the Buddha is pointing to is there's something magical, mystical, something entirely unique about being in the present moment with life's unfolding as it unfolds. There's something about learning that you have the capacity in any given moment to meet that moment with this kind of awe energy that we don't drag the past along with us or spend our whole life anxious about what's going to happen, that we could actually learn to live in the present moment and enjoy it. That in the course of doing that, in the course of meditating, practicing, being with whatever arises as it arises, you are learning how to be in life just as it is with all of its inconsistencies, with all of its impermanence, rising, coming together of conditions, changing, with all of the difficulty that comes with it and with all of the uh, lack of control that we actually have on how things are. I I just think it's remarkable. You know, I'm a Virgo, so some of you know that. I am all about controlling everything, and I am always right. So if you know any Virgos, you might as well let them have it, because they're right. And my whole life, I spent in absolute control of everything. I mean... My kids will tell you they could not bring a picture home that had a yellow sky. It had to be blue because sky is blue. Now it's got a little pink in it, I see, but still blue skies. Everything had to have its place. So when the boys grew up, it was like, no, you can't put the cup like that. You got to put the cup like this. You got to put this like that. And everything, I controlled everything. A lot of it had to do with the fact I came from trauma. So anybody that comes from trauma, we get very, very picky about the way everything has to be. 
because that's the only way we're going to feel safe. So the idea that I would be sitting here telling you present moment, no control, and yet I am happier today than I ever have been in my life. And I have some really difficult things to face here. It is because I have a sense of capacity that I know, not because I know how to control everything, but because I know and have this confidence and trust that I can be with whatever happens. I don't have a sense that something's going to come my way and I'm not going to know what to do. I may not know what I would do now, but I know no matter what comes my way, I have the capacity to be with it. And I don't know this because I'm smart. I know it because I have been in situations where conditions changed and I figured it out in that moment. Not I know what to do before it happens, but I figured it out in the moment. It came to me. I had an understanding. I could see how to respond in the moment. So there's a way that learning the foundation of the truth of the way things are, they are inconsistent. They are subject to change, which causes the world to be dissatisfactory. And it is not personal. Once we begin to get used to that kind of a world, it's far more freeing, far more adventurous, far more um, open-hearted. I am far kinder and far nicer, um, freer than I was before. Because before, I was always clamping down and trying to control everything so that nothing would go wrong. But the more I controlled everything so nothing would go wrong, the less I could trust that I'd be able to handle it if something went wrong. So the more I had to control it so I'd be able to handle whatever if something goes wrong. What I think the Buddha is pointing to is when you actually step into the world and begin to practice with the world as it truly is, the way it truly is, what you end up with is more confidence that you can be in the world and do in the world freer, happier, more um, sort of connected and intimate with the world because you trust you can do whatever, you can handle whatever comes your way. You won't know how to handle or trust that you can handle whatever comes your way if your whole world is controlled and that you keep things out just to make sure you can control it. So we have three months to talk on these kinds of things. We'll talk a little bit about how we... uh Practice with it, work with it. We'll come at this from all different directions. Sometimes we'll talk 
mostly about suffering. Sometimes we'll talk mostly about what is this whole idea of non-self and emptiness. And sometimes we'll talk about uh, how to be with uh, just life itself in this way. But all of this is all getting towards learning to trust this foundation, this triangle netting of learning the three characteristics of existence and trusting that that net can carry you, can hold you in whatever comes up. So let's take a moment to sit quietly. We'll let these words kind of digest. Little tiny poem here by John Donahue. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. All right. Thank you so much. And let's see if anybody has anything they'd like to share or comments or questions or any of it. Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, great. Little thing here. Yeah, which which one? Both? Okay. Both of them? Yeah, what's one? Hello. <laughs> Uh, thank you for your talk. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, you're talking about impermanence and there's all these paradoxes, I think, in, in this whole journey. Um, one being the fact that I can find myself being attached to the idea of non-attachment or attached to impermanence. So like I'll be sitting sometimes and I'll be thinking, okay, there's a sensation here I don't like. But I trust that it's impermanent and it'll go away. And then 10 minutes later, it's still there. And I'm like, I want to go away. (laughs) And it's only once I ironically kind of accept, hey, this might not go away. I'm just going to accept that it is here now. Um, So I'm almost letting go of that attachment I'm having to the idea of non-permanence. And likewise, in general, trying to treat meditation as a tool to control and to try to eradicate negative feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts, what your thoughts were on that. Well, you can think of it like this. What you're saying is exactly true. And when you try to make something go away, it's because the mind thinks it's permanent and it has to make it go away because it won't go away on its own. And oftentimes when we kind of, I I did this with anxiety so much, we try to think it out. 
So we're really saying, okay, I'm going to let it be here. But really, we're like letting it be here so it can go away. That's the whole point of letting it be here. That thinking is you got to sort of consider to yourself, um, are you still sort of uh, thinking of it as a permanent thing? The idea is that if you let it just be sort of like what you're saying and you let the just come to this notion that says, okay, this is just going to be here, right? I'm just going to let it be here. And instead of worrying about whether it's here or not, look at the changing nature of the experience itself because the, the experience is changing, rearranging, even pain changes, rearranges, anxiety, it's constantly moving. There's all this change. What ends up happening is you're actually letting the unpleasantness fall on its own accord. That's what you're trying to see. And if you're looking at it, waiting for it to leave or using the looking at it for it to leave, you think it's permanent, but you have to do some condition to make it change. And what the Buddha was trying to point to is that you're learning how to actually let it be. And there's no better way to learn this than with unpleasantness. Because unpleasantness, we have a a mind that lives in threat matrix. The mind thinks unpleasant is danger. So when something unpleasant happens in our sit, it's not just unpleasant. The mind thinks it's dangerous. It's something that is a threat that needs to get, needs to go away. So your practice, and you won't always be able to just be with the unpleasantness. Sometimes you'll be able to tolerate it. Sometimes you won't. But in your practice for being with this unpleasantness, you are gradually changing the mind's understanding as to whether or not unpleasant is dangerous. And it takes a little while for the mind to grasp that unpleasant is not dangerous. Um, but when it does, now you can feel unpleasant and not panic in that initial reaction. So the way you're describing it is exactly the way it is. You're, ex- you're practicing exactly within the framing of what you're going to do. All I would just say is trust that sometimes you won't be able to tolerate the unpleasantness without changing the conditions. And, and that is not a sign that your practice is weak. Just watch what happens. So if you have a pain in the back and you really need that pain to go away and you try to just be with it, but the pain is just getting louder and louder and louder. And you realize that if you lie down, the pain will go away. Then lie down and watch what happens. And there's no difference between watching what happens when you change the conditions that the mind is happy and watch what happens if you just allow the pain to be there and watch the changing nature of it. So you just, whatever happens, you can't do it wrong. Anything you do is all part of this 
understanding the nature of the way things are. Great, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, can I have a quick follow-up? Yeah. Um, something as you were talking, I was thinking, um, and uh, is would it be accurate to say that the sensations I'm feeling now, and then the, like the discomfort I'm feeling now, and the discomfort I'm feeling ten minutes from now, when I think it's it's stayed there all the time, is just a completely different yes thing entirely, and I'm, it's the story that's making me think that it's the same thing that's here now and. That's exactly what it is. It's not that you are in the same pain. You're in the river and it's constantly changing. But you're right. The mind thinks it's permanent. So it groups it all together. And that's why we're bored with breathing. That's why we want to sit and watch the breath. But the mind is like, oh, yeah, I've seen that breath. It's the same breath. And then it does a memorex. And it'll just have you thinking you're watching the breath. But really, you're over here thinking about something you're planning. And so that's what that's what you want to see is that, no, this is not the same pain that it was before. It's not the same unpleasant. It's not the same experience. It's constantly changing. Good. Thank you. Yeah, come on. Anybody online? Just want to make sure. Hmm. Jean? Oh, I didn't see your hand, Jean. Oh, that's because you're right there on the little thing. Okay, we'll get you next here. No, it's okay. Go ahead. I'll call him next. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was taking it personally. Um, (laughs) One thing that... (laughs) I was thinking of while you were talking uh, that fit into all of this is what's been one of my greatest teachers is in, in parenting is baby sleep. Cannot force baby to sleep oh, yeah. um, as much as you might try and want to. And uh, there's something about wanting to create, you know, as you mentioned, the nice conditions, uh, you know, uh, sort of, it's, it's the perfect problem solve, right? Things aren't going mm-hmm. well, you go to the internet or whatever. And um, I guess I reached this point, I know in my, in my mind and now, after some time in my body that um, I cannot force this to happen uh and there's unpleasantness that feels related to a primal kind of sense that I have but anyway when I can't tolerate it I come to a point where the story is something around resilience Mm -hmm. like I am not resilient this is affecting me so much um let's see you know seeing my child in, in a state that um, feels uncomfortable, seems uncomfortable to me for him. Uh, and so I'm just curious what you would say about resilience as it relates to all of these things that you mentioned. It sounds like the resilience or you're not resilient enough 
that's what I'm hearing. It's like your, your mind gets stuck in this. I'm not resilient. I'm not doing it as good as I should be able to do it. That sounds like this expectation that, you know, motherhood should be lovely. I should have it all figured out. I should know what to do. And it's not like that. Or you take it personal, like I should be the one that can help make this happen. That, that habit mind of pointing towards resilience is more likely connected to a distortion so that you're not actually recognizing that your being with a child who's totally upset and you know, you as parents, we know, they got that look. They need to go to sleep. They really need to go to sleep. And they will act like they are going to sleep. And yet they can't. They're too wild, wound up. There's too much energy. They can't, they can't make it work. Your stability of just allowing this to be is far more supportive than actually being able to get them to go to sleep. That, that it's the, that is what you're learning is not how do I learn how to get the baby to go to sleep or even how do I learn how to just be equanimous with the whole thing and, And you're not. It's learning that there's no sort of perfect way to be. And that however you are, can you just be in the present moment? Can you not be lost in this thinking mind that's saying it should be like this? Or the thinking mind that's grumbling because of, this kind of, I always have to go through that. That is past or that's that future thinking. And instead, you just want to be in the present moment. And however you do this present moment, it's going to look as pretty and as ugly as it does. But it really is okay. Because I think our kids, as picky as I was and as Rude as I was in terms of controlling everything my boys even thought. I even had the trajectory of their life. We had to have a conversation about they had to have first they had to get through school. Then they had to go to college. Then they had to have a get a good job. Then they could buy a car. Then they could find a girlfriend. And then they could have sex. Sort of like that. I started telling them that when they were like little bitty. And inevitably, they would start saying, when do we get to the sex? When do we get to the sex? I'm like, oh, my God. But I mean, I was just always controlling them. Always, always, always. But if you were to ask them now about me as a mother, they would say I was mean and that I was controlling, a dictator. But I was always right there in the present moment with them. There was always a sense of 
finding my way to the present moment, that as messy as it got, I could find my way to the present moment and try to relate to them out of this intimacy of the of my willing but about me caring for them and being kind of trapped in trauma. So there was always this kind of intimacy that was there. That's what I think kids remember, not all of the other stuff. I think mostly we don't have that intimacy and they get lost because they got all this other stuff and it doesn't make any sense to them. But that intimacy, that makes sense. That I love you. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here, but we're going to work it out. That, that's what they remember. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah, Jean, you're going to be the last one, I think. Um, I, I kept um, expecting to hear the word equanimity pop up. And I don't know if that was just uh, my own reaction to it or not to the talk, Um, but I was wondering how does, do you have something to say about that? And uh, also uh, I used to think that equanimity was the end goal, but now I think I hear it as the stepping stone to arriving in the moment as it is. So um, I think Equanimity gets overplayed. So we think that everything's going to be great if I'm equanimous. But you don't have to be equanimous with everything. You could be just losing it on stuff. But you you have to realize you're losing it so that you don't necessarily cause additional harm that you have to deal with later. The idea is more connected to being in the present moment and less connected to, am I looking great in the present moment? Am I steady and smooth in the present moment? And the reason why I'm saying that is, if you let being in the present moment be your guide, then you're going to find that sometimes you're going to look good, sometimes you're not. Sometimes it's going to be... easy. Sometimes it's not. But as time goes on, I think you become more and more and more equanimous because you've seen more and more and more of what the present moment has to offer. So you're you're not ashamed of it if you lose it. You're not ashamed of yourself if you lose it. And you're not bragging on yourself if you do good. You kind of know that you, you can be in any way, any context. Do you see what I'm saying? So this idea of equanimity, I don't think it is the tool that helps you stay in the present moment as much as I think. I mean, it might be your tool to help you stay in the present moment, but it's also the result of your constantly being willing to be in the present moment, no matter what it looks like, whether it's messy or whether it's nice and easy and everything's working out, you're still going to be okay with being in the present moment and accept that everything is all part of the path. So messy, 
part of the path, not messy, part of the path. It's all part of the path. And you're going to learn, you're going to learn equally, whether you have a messy moment or a really smooth, seems like you've been practicing forever moment. You see, that's what you're going to see. And I think that's where that equanimity comes from. Thank you. Okay, so thank you all. I'm looking forward to the practice period. I hope to see you guys next week and we will continue our journey onto the three characteristics. All right? All right, bye-bye.